Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Beverly Gaventa. Uh, Dr. Gaventa is a uh, professor of New Testament at Baylor University. Prior to that, she was for many years a professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, where I had the privilege of of knowing her a little bit. Uh, She's a, a mentor and a teacher of many of my friends and colleagues in the uh, biblical studies uh, profession from my Princeton days. But she's been at Baylor now for uh, quite a while, and uh, that's that's where she's at now. She's author of tons of books and articles. Uh, I actually glanced at her Wikipedia during uh, while we were recording because I was trying to remember a particular article she wrote that I had the the title wrong on, and uh, <laughs> and that yeah, she's got a. She's got a page on there and you can see all her, uh, all her writings and she's got a lot of great stuff out there and a significant Bible scholar. And we're very honored, uh, to have her on the show for our, uh, Christmas episode. Our text this week is, uh, Galatians chapter four, verses four through seven. That's Galatians four, four through seven. That's the epistle reading for the Sunday after, uh, Christmas. And, uh, we'll hope that you will, uh, enjoy our discussion of that. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you're enjoying the show, hit the share button on the, your podcast player app of choice and pass this show along to others so they can enjoy as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Gaventa. So we're looking at uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Would you be willing to read the passage? Sure. And I'm, I'm reading from the NRSV. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day which you have made. Grant us the grace to rejoice and be glad in it. Give you thanks for this hour to which we have been sent, gathered by your Spirit to study the Word. Please grant us the grace to seize the task of this hour, that we might be empowered and equipped by your Spirit to bear the Word of God well and faithfully. We ask that not only for Beverly and myself, but all our listeners, separated as they are by space and time from this moment. Nevertheless, this prayer is for them as well. 
Help us, equip us, guide us, and encourage us. And God, we thank you also for this moment in which you are present. Please grant us the grace to be aware of your presence in the moments to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I know this is a familiar text to you, <laughs> but nevertheless, texts are always fresh every time. So let's uh, just start with some observations. What's, what's, uh, what's grabbing you today as we read this text again? Well, there's a lot in this text. I think the first thing that struck me because of the way the lection is crafted is that time reference at the beginning. And, mm. and the, um, the, the disjunction, but, but mm. when the fullness of time had come. As in all of Paul's letters, you know, we're coming in, we're talking about a very small piece in a larger story. And up until now, he has been depicting the world, both the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, and the Jewish world prior to the sending of the sun. And there's this abrupt change here. But when the fullness of time had come, God took this action. Another thing that I notice is the, uh, this language. Well, it really is connected to that reversal of time. The, the language of reversal throughout here. The son comes into the world as a complete human being, you know, as a normal human being, as, a, as born of a woman. Uh, born under the law. We can come back and talk about that. But <laughs> to redeem those who are under the law uh, so that you get this whole course of the Christian drama in these yeah. verses, uh, humanity is uh, enslaved. That's the language Paul uses here. And because of the son's arrival in the incarnation, Humanity is redeemed and liberated, not just not just left sort of freed for for whatever, but to be a child of God and to cry out to God as father. So you get this whole cycle of the redeeming act of God in these four tiny verses. Yeah, you're right. Even just the first two, four and five, you almost get that full sweep right. of reversal, right? So you go from, you have the son who is sent under the law and then to redeem those under the law so that we might receive sonship, right? In the right. original, right? So right. It, right. it's son becomes slave so that slaves might become son to use the kind of <laughs> patristic yeah, it's, uh, it's, pattern uh, of language. Exactly. Uh, they didn't invent those things. Exactly. You know, Paul, wasn't, <laughs> Paul wasn't trying to solve the same problems they were, but they didn't invent this cycle. And nice. That's a good, it looks good way of putting much, it. it. It looks very much like the language of the Philippians hymn. Ah, yeah. And of course, this is a movement that Paul deals with at much more length in Romans 8. You know, this is this is kind of a precy of what he will say in Romans eight about Yeah, the early version, the the short yeah. version. <laughs> right, right, right. So. Oh yeah, no, that's man, that that I don't know if I ever saw how every beat 
of that down and up is all there, even in the opening verses. Side note, I love that way of putting it. I'm going to use that again, that phrase talking about the later centuries of Christianity as, you know, they're, they're asking different questions, but they didn't invent this, right? The, yeah, <laughs> the, right. the patterns of thought are rooted in scripture, even if the questions are new. There's, there's a lesson there. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I was, I was struck. I, maybe it's sort of obvious, but the parallelism in four and six of the sending forth using that exact same verb twice mm-hmm. of the sending of the son and the sending of the spirit shocker theologian here would be excited about that. But, but nevertheless, like it's so often you find a, a, a variation of verbiage between Lord and spirit and just the clear parallelism between four and six just really hit me today. I, I was, I had underlined before when I just was opening it up today, I had the sending um, the, you know, Ex apostelene underlined in four, but I didn't have it underlined in six for some reason. And it just was like, I mean, it's, it's so similar. You know, it's the word order is even the same, right? It's like sent forth the God, the son of him. And then sent forth the God, the spirit of the son of him, right? So just so the parallel grabbed me today. I don't know why that matters, but it, it grabbed me today. Right. And, and again, the interplay of these agents is important. And while it's still the case that Paul is not a Trinitarian, you know, there is a kind of Trinitarian grammar assumption at work here mm. that all three uh, are agents in salvation. All three are at work here. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah keeps coming up. I mean, this text invites that sort of, how do you relate this Pauline stuff with these later developments? And also the the season of year that this text was selected for, the Christmas right. season, it's kind of hard to not make those connections, but it's important to be careful to recognize. I sometimes like to say, you know, well, sure, Paul was a Trinitarian. He just wasn't a Nicene Trinitarian. Like the, the But the sense of there being a triple form right. that's fine but that he's not speculating about the metaphysics of god's eternal life that's a, that's a that's a later question as you put it that's a yeah. question it's not even on his radar yeah. i do think you know in, in view of the season for which this is assigned it's really important to notice these parallel phrases uh the son is born of a woman born under the law yeah um, say more about that well you know Paul does not have, in case anybody's forgotten it, Paul does not have a birth narrative. You know, he doesn't <laughs> talk about uh, the birth of Jesus or the conception of Jesus. And this is about as close as we get to hmm. a kind of uh, reference to that. I'm not sure so much that he's alluding to Mary and Joseph, but he's, he is saying that Jesus is a human being. What yeah. God sent was not a spook, mm. which, as you know better than I do, in the early centuries of the church's life was a, a tendency, you know, to think that God couldn't possibly be incarnate. So he must have just, Jesus must have just seemed like a human, right? And we have, you know, we have some tendencies in that direction. I think that our tendency is more, at least as I look at Christianity or as I know it, is more to think of Jesus as a good hero guy, 
mm-hmm. uh, a good example. That's also not Paul's language. You know, it, it, this is God's son who becomes mm-hmm. a human. This is not a human who happens to be virtuous and therefore is elevated for that reason. This ah. is God's son who is born under the law, you know, who is constrained as humans are. Yeah, though, boy. It. <laughs> and very, if I could just add, and Go, very yeah. quickly, because we do as Christians have this terrible tendency to forget it, born as a Jew. Yeah. And part of Israel and never other than that. Yeah, well, there's two issues there. Uh, I'd like to camp out on the second that you just sure. brought up. Are these somewhat parallel and reinforcing? I, I'm trying to remember. I know that, that in later centuries, I can't remember. You, you would know. I wouldn't. <laughs> when did the policy that strict Jewish heritage is, is passed through the mother? Was that already up and running? I, I know that was a, like that became a thing and still is in some Jewish communities. The notion that your mother is Jewish sort of counts in an important sense. Was that already up and running? Is that a, is that a second temple Judaism thing or no? Is that a... I, I don't think I ever want to be caught generalizing about oh, Second yes, good. Judaism. <laughs> Hence the grin. I saw a grin. I'm like, what's the grin? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start equivocating. Uh, okay, please, Leo. There's at least some evidence that lineage is traced through the mother, uh, okay. that Jewish heritage is traced through the mother. And for the reason, you know, that that's all too familiar, that you know who the mother is. Right. Yeah. Okay. You know, I mean, I think that's... I don't know that I've ever seen that said in, in a text, but that seems to me to be the obvious reason. There's a we, sort of practical. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so it's actually maybe less, it's not just an exclusionary tactic. It's also a very practical, ironically, even an inclusionary tactic to say, whoever the father may be, we know who the. Yeah. Well, I, huh? again, I, I am not. I am saying that as a matter of sort of practical observation. Yes. Yeah. Not not attributing that to Jewish texts. I want to be really gotcha. clear about that. Great. But you know, one of the things Paul is very clear about, because I, I often have students who will talk about, well, Paul was a Jew and then he became a Christian. Oh, geez. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and in reaction to that, you know, I have a fair number of colleagues who don't want to use the word Christian in this period, and I understand that there are real problems with that. But I think it's important to note that whatever Paul, I mean, he, Paul doesn't have this word Christian. He never uses it. Mm. But Paul understands himself consistently to be a part of Israel. More important, he understands Jesus to be part of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's the, he's the offspring of David, Romans 1. He is counted in Romans 9 among God's gifts to Israel. Katasarka uh, is the birth of it is Jesus. So as Christians, we we can never uh, allow ourselves to be trapped into diminishing that relationship. It's almost the perfect when you say you know what God sent was not a spook. You might think, oh, in the fullness of time, even fullness sounds very. That can sound real Gnostic, you know, but yes. this fullness right. of time, right. God sent forth, which sounds very heavenly and pre-existent, you know, a son, but then boom, born of a woman, born under the law. And if you, all you had was born of the woman, it'd be okay, human, but born under the law. Okay. So that even then, and it's like, you can almost run it backwards then. Okay. The born of the woman, 
yeah, a Jewish woman, a, a particular, a this particular, particular people. Right, right. And then even the language of sonship then can be interpreted somewhat through that. that son doesn't have to be a spooky, uh, you know, eternal reality. It can be son of David, you know, exactly. son of God, these royal. Exactly. Yeah, right. So if you run it from the end of the sentence backward, backward, all these terms kind of take on a covenantal Jewish sense, Is if I'm hearing you right. Am I applying your insight correctly to the well, text at hand or not? You know, I, the word covenant makes me a little bit uncomfortable sometimes because of the way it's applied, but they certainly have a location in Jewish identity. In, nice. Okay. In in Israel's relationship to God. The reason I get nervous about the word covenant is because of its overuse and because of things that get imported into it. Like sure. Okay. Covenant as contract, where God does 50% or 60% yeah. maybe, because <laughs> this is God, but and we, we do 40%. You know, covenant. The language of promise to me is is more helpful and more uh, more relevant to this text at hand, exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Okay, yeah. that's good. That's yeah. good. Well, yeah, I said there were two issues there, and we don't have to come back to the the first, but this you do kind of hint at. I know pre existence in Paul is a the pre existence of Christ in Paul is a debatable matter, but it seems. Perhaps worth bringing up, but let's let's take a quick break and come back and and zoom out and go wherever we want to go with that. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. We're looking at uh, Galatians four, verse four through seven, and our guest this week is none other than the Beverly Gaventa. So, yeah, let's uh, let's zoom out a little bit and explore whatever interpretive questions you want to talk about, about how this fits into the letter, into Paul in general, or some of the theological questions or anything. We can really, the bumpers are off. So, you know, go where we want to go. What, what's, what, what, what questions does this raise in you? What, what excites you the most to, to talk about with this passage? Well, I said earlier, I think this is a little bit of a precy of what Paul develops in Romans 8. And maybe I want to go back to that because in our first segment, we talked a lot about the relationship between the identity of Jesus as, as depicted here and the uh, relationship to the to later Christian development. But I made a statement about how this reminded me a little bit of the Philippians hymn. But of course, in the Philippians hymn, what you get is the elevation of the sun. Here, the focus is not so much Christological once you get past verse four, as it is the implications of this incarnation and the sending of the Son for humanity. And I want to linger over that because one of the things that I notice here is what he says about the human, you know, those who were under the law. Now, in Galatians, Paul has a fairly negative understanding of mm. Jewish law. He modifies that in Romans. In Romans, it becomes sin that holds the law captive and therefore, or sin that makes use of the law and then takes over the human. Here, it's you're under the law. And he says to redeem those who were under the law. 
Hmm. What I think is important to notice here is by way of contrast with a lot of contemporary Christian uh, rhetoric, he doesn't talk about forgiving people. Hmm. That's not really language Paul uses when he talks about forgiveness. He usually means uh, horizontal, forgive me for something I've done wrong. That is, you, John, should forgive me if I messed up this interview, right? Um, but he, we tend to talk about our sinning and God forgiving us. Mm. And there's a lot of biblical language about that. And it's good language. I'm not putting it down. But I think for Paul, in, particularly in Galatians and Romans, the human problem is bigger than a matter of simply being repentant and being forgiven. It actually is redemption. And the, the verb he uses here is a verb that's associated with redeeming someone out of slavery. You know, oh, so okay. we're in this enslaved state. It's not a matter of, I did something wrong. I'm sorry I did that. Would you please forgive me? It is, I am captive. I need release. I need liberation. And, and we get this also in Romans. And I think it's really important to see that because, and that's where the contrast is so important. Not only does he depict here humans being redeemed out of this enslaved state, but what? Being adopted, crying to God as father, being a child of the household. You know, that this is a tremendous depiction of what the Christ event accomplishes for human beings. Yeah, total reversal, like you said, not just right. not just taken out of slavery into kind of a neutral condition, but right. transferred from slavery into right. sonship, right. household. And this is why for Paul in this letter, it is just inconceivable, you know, that these Gentile believers could decide that they had to follow Jewish law and be circumcised because he sees that as a diminishment, a, a kind of add-on. You know, uh, you've got Jesus, but you need X too. Hmm. You, you need to be one of us physically. You need to be one of us in your behavior. Here I'm parodying what the Gentiles might have believed, the Galatians mm. might have believed, because of teachers other than Paul, opposed to Paul. And uh, for Paul, this, this gospel is an all-consuming thing. Huh. You know, it, it really does consume prior values, and it upsets any sort of status claim based on being mm. male, well, 328, male... Yep or free, or Jewish even. All of which Jesus was and is. Right. And so a son, but all of those, all the status that would be attributed to those things are transferred to us through the great reversal, right? Right. right. Would it be fair to say that, that Paul's sort of deepest worry, at least like the theoretical or the, the theological worry rather than just the practical side of it, of these other teachers is they're they're attempting to reverse the reversal, as it were. Is it kind of is it is it backtracking, or is it more, or is it, am I imaging it wrong to take it that way? I mean, I think for them, 
it's not exactly backtracking because these are not people who would have been uh, ah. synagogue affiliates, right? Right. Okay. Um, at least as far as we know. I do think in Romans, a number of the members of the house churches in Rome are Gentiles who were kind of synagogue groupies, you know, okay. uh, who, who hung out at the synagogue. And were but had not converted to Judaism. Would that be a partial explanation for the differences between Romans and Galatians? I mean, I, I assume there's also development and thought for Paul, but maybe there's a little bit of yeah rhetorical have, need to it may have <laughs> be more careful, right? It may have something to do with it. I don't think in the Galatian congregations we're looking at. Uh, I may be completely wrong, but I think by and large in the in the Galatian congregations we're looking at. What would have been proverbial, you know, the, the dirty Gentiles, you know, yeah. they, they really are people. Pagans. You don't, you don't yeah. Well, yeah, it's a terrible <laughs> way to put it now, but to say pagan. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think what has happened is, and this is certainly not novel with me, is that other, Christ, what we would call Christian Jews, have mm-hmm. followed in Paul's footsteps have found themselves in these congregations. And they have said, oh, well, Paul gave you just part of the gospel. Yeah, let me fill you in the let rest of it. Let me give you the okay. rest of it, because you have to do these things in order to be one of us. Now, what I mean, the question that's interesting to me to ask is, why wouldn't Paul just say, well, sure? <laughs> I mean, why not follow the law, be circumcised? You know, yeah. What's it going to hurt? What, yeah. What's that? Well, you could say you, you, there's 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 a very pragmatic argument to be made about that. Yeah, which is that if if you go that way, uh, you're going to limit the number of Gentile converts. You know, so some people have argued that Paul's you know law free, if you want to call it that, gospel. Paul's understanding of the gospel is strictly an expedient toward the Gentile mission. <laughs> you know, this is kind of... Uh, Church growth kind of, strategy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? This is this is Christianity light, you know? Yeah. And I'm sure it may have seemed that way to some other Christians. We have to put yeah. this in a larger context, you know? But I think Paul's response, whatever he was thinking, and I have no access to that, whatever he was thinking, his theological response is not that his theological response is that the gospel is a claim on the whole person. Hmm. Uh, the gospel claims everything about our lives. And one lives, well, you know, in Christ, mm-hmm. uh, Galatians 2, and Christ lives in me. And there, it is a kind of singular, all devouring claim. So you cannot have both Christ and these practices. Hmm. And, you know, by the way, you also can't have Christ and he could have put it a different way. You can't have Christ and the other gods on offer in your cities. Right. So we see that side of a more maybe in the Corinthian correspondence, right? Where exactly. he is, he, exactly. he does have an anti-pagan argument also. Yes. It's just a different one than these it's other teachers. Right. Right. Okay. And I, I think we very much underestimate the pull of these other practices. 
<laughs> uh, of all sorts. I mean, we could talk about that for a very long time. But let me go back to first to Galatians and the issue here. I think that it's possible, and here I'm really extrapolating from the text, but I think it's quite possible that for some of the Galatian believers, the appeal of the Jewish teachers is that now they have something to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, know, you, you are circumcised, you follow the law. We have rules, you know, mm-hmm. and we, we go in this way. And that's a big impulse that we have to recognize in ourselves. You know, how can I, uh, how can I be sure I'm okay with God? Well, I've got these rules and I follow those. You know, please note that I'm not talking about legalism as such. I'm talking about a sense of, because I, I don't think the first century Judaism was any more legalistic than 21st century Christianity. Yeah. You know, I, it, some people are legalistic, some people are not. That's not what we're talking about. But I'm suggesting that for some people, the offer of the following of Mosaic law may have been a way of finding a kind of certainty, security. Yeah. Uh, you kind of you kind of add on. You get a little extra value this way. Even just clarity of how to live one's life. For Paul, it was obvious he's out on mission, so he's filling up his days. Right. Um, but for them living their lives, especially if they had successfully or at least partially pulled back from pagan practice, that kind of leaves a hole mm-hmm. in their life, right? And so yes. for someone to come along and say – oh, well, by accepting the Messiah, you've now linked yourself up with the promises of the Torah and of the prophets. And and up to that point, Paul's like, yes, exactly. And so then it'd be very easy to add one more step, which is, well, maybe and that can be way. your new religion now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I think there is a kind of attraction for people. And, and I, we do know that Judaism was, on the one hand, harshly ridiculed by a lot of Gentile writers for being, you know, for the fact that they only worship one God, and these people are uh, turned in on themselves, they they don't have anything to do with people on the outside, and they have strange practices about food. On the other hand, we do know that Jewish practice is very attractive to some people. So hmm. there's there's a both and, and I, I think that is one reason that the gospel finds a footing early on. But then for Paul, it's not sufficient to say, well, now you become Jews and Jesus is kind of the, the way you get in. You know, it, there's a lot more at stake for him than simply Jesus as a way of incorporating Gentiles into Israel. Yeah. How would you sum up that something more, that something beyond mere incorporation, though he has that element, you know, but what would be the the best way to sort of capture that? And maybe it's right here hidden in text. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I think language uh, of redemption already implies something more than mere incorporation into something else. Yeah. Well, I think we finally get that in uh, in Romans. Of course, I, I'm cheating a little bit. It, that's, that's not okay. A, um, <laughs> but I think in Romans, what we get is the cosmic horizon of this whole scenario. That is to say, 
it is not simply that Gentiles become part of God's people. I don't think that for Paul, Gentiles become part of Israel. I think that's a rather dangerous way Hmm. of reading this. To be a child of Abraham may be for him a little different than being an Israelite, Uh. oddly enough. But I think for Paul, it's not simply that there is uh, a new peopleness for these Gentiles, but or even that Israel gets its long-awaited Messiah. Uh, it is vastly extended in Romans to be enslavement to sin itself, uh, to powers. Um, and it's, you know, you get to Romans, the middle of Romans eight, and it's the whole of creation is longing for this redemption. That's not simply the repair of Israel or the incorporation of Gentiles. It's a much larger canvas. Okay. No, that that's helpful. Even just not that you can pack all that into the verb redemption in verse five, but at least a little bit that, that signals something pretty radical, especially since sonship or adoption, at least in Romans 8, has pretty clear sort of resurrectional cosmic sort of connections, right? I mean, he he links that up. There's one sentence in Romans 8 Mm -hmm. where it's like redemption. I think it's redemption, adoption, and resurrection are all just kind of smushed together as like almost correlated concepts, right? Inheritance. (laughs) Yeah, inheritance. Yeah, and I think it's important to pause and say the most obvious thing, which is also the one we neglect, is in no case, neither here nor there, is Paul talking about individual salvation. Yeah. You know, American Christianity gets kind of obsessed with my relationship to Jesus and my individual standing. And it's not that that is irrelevant or a bad thing. But that tends to be the biggest thing we're able to think about, hmm. you know, or maybe we think about me and my people, you know, or me and the people who are like me. But by the time you get to the end of Romans, it's not just about me. It's about us. And it's about a vastly larger us than most of us are willing to imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. Actually, that raises a just a sort of tiny exegetical question. I noticed there was this kind of verse four and five, except that the, until the very last line, last word of verse five, he's sort of speaking in third person about mm-hmm. these events. But there is a we received, we receive in end of verse five, a we, and then six. It starts out plural um, because you are sons sent the son of into our, into, is it our hearts or your hearts? I want to check your hearts, your hearts. That's the switch to second person. It stays in second person, but plural. And then there's like this little uh, singular switch in verse seven, you individually, I mean, it could still be a, a collective singular, but I mean, just at the first glance, it's a grammatically singular. You are so. Then, if you singular are no longer a slave but a son, 
I mean, I don't want to put too much weight on all that, but it is sort of interesting how he just moves from sort of third person to first person plural to, so there's those under the law would be sort of third person plural, then to first person plural, we received to second person plural, you are sons to second person singular. Sorry to overdo it with all this stuff, but I'm not just trying to show off for my teacher. Right. But, uh, (laughs) I did my homework, but you know what I mean? Like, is there, is there any weight on those or is Paul just tend to just move around? And could that be instructed to this question because of the sort of the cosmics first, the communal kind of comes in second and then the individual kind of is, is at the end as an application. I mean, I don't want to overdo that, but yeah, that's interesting. What I'm staring at here is uh, the fact that in at the end of verse six, uh, there is actually, to make it more complicated, a text-critical problem. So uh, some <laughs> manuscripts mean read our, plural, and some read your, plural, uh, which does is not an answer to your question. Well, it uh, just goes to show that the, the confusion is ancient. Right. <laughs> that, that, that some that some scribes may have been lost by the pattern as well. <laughs> I, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, one of the questions about this text is he says something about to redeem those born under the, those under the law. Well, yeah. this Who's is that? Kind of, yeah, this would be <laughs> you know this would be a reference to Jews, but not to Gentiles, unless he's thinking that somehow Gentiles are also under the. You know, so there, it's confusing. Some, that's there's yeah. confusion about that. I I I tend to get pretty uh, worked up about these changes in um, in person. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> but I, I I do wonder if some of them, like verse seven, uh, where you do get this singular, I think that's that's the only place right mm-hmm. where there's a a reference to the implication that is in this in the singular. You are a slave. In some ways, I think that is a rhetorically a way of making this more effective, more impactful. I don't yeah. like that word to give it a larger <laughs> impact. Uh, you are a slave. You are no longer sorry. If you are a slave, but a, you are no longer a slave, but a son or a child. If a child and an heir, I, I do think there's a kind of um, rhetorical move being made there that's powerful. And I would connect it to uh, the rhetorical move that we get in Romans. You know, you start Romans with they, chapter uh. one, those bad people over there who did those things. And then I'm a fudging a little bit, but there's a move to we mm-hmm. and all. And then in Romans seven, you get this. I, I mm. you know, so I think there is uh, some use of the pronouns that's not strictly to be charted as aha. Now he's talking about the individual, right? But really, is is kind of for rhetorical effect. Yeah, well, I mean, it works. I mean, Paul's not a preacher in the twenty first century, but it's still a preacher's trick, right? You you kind of talk about. You know, they, and, and then you talk way, about we, and then at some point you got to land it and say you. <laughs> right, right. Well, my yeah. one of my favorite examples of this is, you know, how do people characterize Romans 9 through 11? Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel, you know, and some people will say it's about Israel's disobedience. I find that quite reprehensible, by the yeah. way. But then it's God and Israel, 
right? God in Israel, God in Israel. And that's the way Paul leads you through it. But then what mm. happens at 1113, he says, now I'm talking to you Gentiles. <laughs> and I, I think, I don't think that's an accident. And I don't think it's just an aside. I think he's saying, by the way, you have had a completely erroneous understanding uh, of yeah. God and Israel. And now it's time for me to call, you know, who's the problem here? The problem is not God. The problem is not even Israel. The problem is that you think you have understood what God's doing and you're wrong. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's not, okay, now I'm talking to Gentiles, but I was talking to you all along. By the Pay way. Attention. Yeah, right. right. Oh, that's really good. Oh, that's really helpful. And that's, and that's another way to take seven is to verse seven here, as opposed to now we're switching topics to the individual, but rather... And yes, this also applies to you individually, you, not just, you yeah, don't look yeah. around at somebody else. This is about you. Right. Oh, that's really helpful. Well, that's a nice uh, segue into thinking about preaching a little. So let's take a break and explore some sermon starters. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Texts. I'm here with... Beverly Gaventa, and we're looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, which is uh, a great text in general for preaching, but in particular, it's been uh, signed in the lectionary for the Sunday after uh, Christmas. Uh, so, of course, someone might be listening to this at some other time, so we don't have to get stuck on the Christmas themes, but we can if we wish. It's, it's really up to you. Let's explore some sermon starters. What are some ideas, suggestions, illustrations? I mean, we don't have to just uh, open it up. What what would you uh, offer or suggest to our listeners if they were preparing a sermon or a teaching on this text? Well, if it's okay, I'm going to back up and answer, answer that question in terms of a general comment about preaching Paul. Which, oh, great. Please. You know, yeah. I, I realize that for a lot of pastors, Paul is, Paul's letters are uh, very difficult for preaching. And the tendency, as I hear it, is often to go for a word and to lift that word out and then talk about that. Um, <laughs> and there's a great little essay that Leander Keck, I think it was, wrote years ago about how, you know, the tendency is to say, to take uh, Romans 5 and to say, ah, there's hope. We really, really ought to have hope, you know, instead of looking at and then make a little, you know, praise about hope or insist that people must have hope instead of looking at the dynamic of the text. Hmm. So I would encourage people with the Pauline letters to do, in a sense, what you and I were doing earlier. Look for the movement in the passage. Where does it begin and where does it leave you? I would encourage people to look at the relationship insofar as we know it, and we're limited in that, between Paul and the people to whom he's writing. What mm. is it that they're claiming? What is it that, that they seem to be needing? And what is it that he's doing and why? And how, you know, I wouldn't look for sort of, are we the Galatians? You know, sometimes that works. Very often it doesn't. But what is there in this text that we might need to hear? What is it we need to be reminded of? So a couple things that I notice here. One is 
in keeping with the Christmas tide, you know, simply the size of God's action in this story that we've been, this text we've been talking about, we tend to uh, emphasize, and rightly so, you know, the babe in the manger, you know, but this babe in the manger signals God's intent to reclaim the world for God (laughs) out of the rulership of other powers. And there's just an enormous sense of joy for me in that and hope. And it's, it's the, the, well, I keep using this word, the the vast size of the gospel. Yeah. I think especially these days, given our season, our pandemic season and our uh, national anxiety, to put it mildly, my <laughs> my eyes. I think if I were preaching this, I might have to go to the first that first clause, when the fullness of time had come, hmm. and to think about what Paul means by that. It's it's pretty clear he doesn't mean well. God looked at everything and saw it was so bad it was time to do something. (laughs) As if, and you sometimes hear this, you know, the Roman world was so terrible and sometimes worse yet, uh, Judaism was so bankrupt that God just had to act. Well, first of all, the Roman world was full of religious practices. It was full of concern about virtue. I'm not saying people were virtuous. I have no way of knowing. Judaism was a lively undertaking. There are lots of expressions of Judaism in this period. There's nothing, it's it's not like God said, oh, my goodness, the sewers are running over. I've got to do something Yeah, this is an now, especially right? bad time, right? Right. But it's it's the fullness. This is notion uh, is a kind of literal image of time running over. And the, the point is that it's God's time. It's not ours, mm. you know. And right now, when... I, at least, I don't think I'm alone and feeling so impatient, you know, so caught up in my own little sense of time. You know, I think, well, it's been months now and I haven't been to a grocery store. You know, it's been months now. I want to go to a movie or Hmm. for many people, heart rending, you know, it's been months now and I haven't held my beloved grandmother or my grandchild, you know. (laughs) Those are terrible experiences, and I don't want to minimize them. But there's something in here that I think encourages us to remember that this is this is God's time. You know, the time that the time of act, the time of redemption is really God's. It's not up to us to say when a season is over. And that is not at all to say you hand over the pandemic and just wait for God to fix it, please. But that that as Christians, we have a, a, a second way of telling time. And it's uh. we know what time we we know whose time it is, even as we are impatient and aching and mm. lonely. So that's one yeah. way I would go. Well that's that's really good. I I was thinking about when you said earlier the temptation to uh you know find a word and run with it you know and the one that i was tempted by the most was this fullness of time to just yeah. import into that 
And, and of course you're not doing it that way, which is so great. And to see it in the dynamic of this passage, there's a part of me that, that wants to almost. So again, you're talking about when we preach on Paul, we sometimes sort of look at, okay, what's going on there and then, and then we look for analogy here and now. And that's, that's, that's often valid, but when Paul himself has already, if there's a dynamic, like you said, paying attention to the dynamic of the text, the text already has a dynamic of a then and a now. And so we can enter into that as our perspective. And it, it lines up with these two sendings, right? The the sending of the son under a woman, under the law to redeem those and to, so that we receive sonship. That's a kind of that's not a, a principle that applies in lots of places. That's a very particular event, right? Like we talked right, about. Exactly. But then the second half very much signals what that now looks like for us. It's the God sending the spirit into our hearts so that we cry out. And that language of crying out does make me think of Exodus. You know, God heard their cries. And so he sent Moses and which links it with the 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 redeeming right the the buying back right the liberation and even the language of inheritance at the end has this forward look to we're inheritors that doesn't mean we have yet received you know all that right. is entailed so you almost could put you could and here was the random idea i had riffing off all of that was verse to kind of put fullness of time, you could almost repeat it at the end of verse seven, you know, you know, so that no longer are you a slave, but a, a child, a son. And, and if a son also an inheritor through God, when the, In the fullness. fullness of time comes, right? Yeah. Cause there is yeah. a sort of second fullness of time. Yeah. That's still to come. And we yeah. can kind of look both back and forward, which is very Advent like, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know. That's just a thought. I, I And that, there could be a little bit even of a sermon structure to kind of both look back and look forward. And we can be grateful that the fullness time has already come. And yet on another level, it hasn't yet. Yeah. And make those connections to our own experience now. But also to realize that that's not the final say. Like you said, the, a lot of these things are themselves cosmic and very, you know, practical bondages that we're facing and we're exactly. awaiting the fullness of liberation. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. It was just an idea. No, I think <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, I do. I, and I think given the season, we talked about this a little bit earlier, this, this language of the son being born of a woman born under the law. A third possibility would be to work at that because there is this tendency to make Jesus into a kind of superhero or possibly a kind of spook, you know, (laughs) Um, and the character of the love, a a word that can often be abused, but the character (laughs) of the love of God in sending the son who becomes really one of us is mm-hmm. uh, something we, we can't emphasize too often. Now, you know, how you play that out in a sermon, I think, will depend very much on the, the people and the place and the time. But the, the constraints, you know, of human flesh, of living under human rule should be noticed here. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, am I am I remembering correctly? Don't you have an article that has that in the title from years ago? <laughs> I think maybe in a on a born of a woman, born under the law, something like that. That's sort of uh, in a book on Mary. Or am I am I being confusing you with someone else? <laughs> Uh, well, it's possible. You know? Yeah, you don't. Uh, yeah, you've written I, a lot, so you know you can lose track. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've ever written an essay on this uh, on this particular text. I have written on Mary. You have a bo- whole book on that, yeah? No. Yeah, I have a book that I wrote on Mary, and then Cindy Rigby and I edited another book on Mary. And I, I do think that Protestants have a tendency not to want to talk about Mary. You know, it's, it's born out of a misunderstanding, I think, of Catholic and Orthodox traditions about Mary. That is to say, our misunderstanding of their traditions has made us unwilling to talk about Mary at all. But the very particularity of this language, and Paul doesn't ever use her name, but the very particularity of this of this language signals something about God's commitment to us, to the human, that is not to be uh, rushed over, and signals something about the the commitment really to to the human being and all of its uh, messiness. Yeah, no, that's that's so so good. No, I, I could definitely I think there's a beautiful a beautiful little sermon to write on the mother of Jesus as the like you said, the the messiness and the constraints, uh, but also the love and faithfulness uh of this fullness of time. Yeah. And it highlights the sort of the the intersection of the cosmic and the mundane. You know Exactly. Exactly. And which then, because, you know, it's always a struggle in preaching to kind of, you can do these big cosmic things and then you're like, oh yeah, and here's some practical applications and they kind of feel tacked on. But if right. the if the mundane and the cosmic are intersecting the whole way through the sermon, then that turn, you also, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> is mm-hmm. not completely out right. of place this it, it actually you. fits right yeah yeah and and you know we have not talked at all about what precedes this which is really problematic that we haven't talked about it but you know the, here you have this language about we were enslaved to the stoicheia the elemental spirits mm-hmm. of the world you know we, i mean we could talk about what that means for a long time but somehow it has to do with the elements of of the world of the cosmos and their controlling features so there there is a big narrative here and it's a bad one about how Mm -hmm. we are somehow captive to these elements in the universe and so what you know instead of saying god knocked them out with a single blow you know god attacks those, and I mean that language, God takes those Mm. on in the person of what? A human being born just like us, you know? Yeah. And I think that's the, uh, that's the, the, the shocker here. Yeah. I mean, the, the language of time and until and slavery, it's already, I mean, you could start the passage even earlier, but at least at verse one would be a wise uh, choice because then you could 
And right. in a sermon, that would be a natural thing. You talk about, you start by talking a bit about the kind of waiting and waiting for the fullness that we have now, the stressors, and then the kind of pulling back of the curtain of Paul wants us to see that these are just signs of something even more terrifying. And, and but more look at how God has done that. And you're right. And even the language of right. under is used for the stoicheia, right? Under. So yes. that parallels the under the law, under the stoicheia exactly. of the world, exactly. the elemental powers. Right. right. Yeah. No, I think these are some good suggestions. I, I mean, we're throwing around some ideas. People will know what to do. Uh, not to disparage anything you said, but your opening suggestion as just general advice about preaching Paul is is gold. I mean, that is gold. That is really good to not just take a word run and fill it in with our own content is what ends up happening then. But pay attention to the dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then a sermon, even if a sermon doesn't follow the the exact, you know, the verse by verse or any of that, but if if the sermon is in sync with the dynamic of the text, then it is faithful to the text, even if exactly. the themes and the language right. are very different. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it, you don't have to go through sort of line by line, lay it out. Um, a sermon is not an exegesis paper. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, thanks be to ex- God. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, tell me about it. But an exegesis paper, or at least an exegetic, a close exegetical reading, will often suggest some dynamic here. This, uh, you know, it's you too. God has done this for you too. Uh, for uh, each of us, and this, you know, this this change from being the slave to the child to the heir, that that is fantastically large language for the divine action for us. Yeah, the great reversal. I'm thinking of titles, exactly. sermon titles, yeah. the great right. reversal, right. Right. or also between two sendings, or something <laughs> like that. I uh, like that. Or the emptiness of time to kind of create expectation for fullness or something. You know, there's lots of possibilities that could be, that could be played with. Oh man. Oh, there's so much good here. And this is one of my all time favorite texts. (laughs) I love this passage. And then I gave you a few to choose. And when you chose this, I was delighted, not surprised, but delighted. I'm like, Oh, you'd be perfect for this text. right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm delighted. Well, thanks so much uh, for giving an hour of your time uh, to study and to our listeners. Thanks and for as always, yeah, I do a quick thank you to uh, Todd and Eric for the great production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. I'm pretty old fashioned, so I appreciate their work. And thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks to all our listeners, of course, uh, for tuning in and getting the word out. And with that said, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>